2: And the label, honestly, this is a true story. We took it to them they went, what's this? And we said, it's Kick. It's our album. They're like, well, we don't understand it. Okay, because this is 1987. Can't you guys just do like a, like a hairband thing and wow. just put on some spandex and play the game? We're like, no, this is our album and we really love it.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 62 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson, thanks as always for hitting play. Now my guest today is one that I was so happy to get on the show. I'm just putting it out there that I am a huge In Excess fan. They are one of those bands that, for me, they always put a smile on my face. Their songs are infectious and they make you move. Yes, Michael Hutchins was an incredible frontman, full of energy and vigour. He was ridiculously good-looking, even as a bloke, I can say that. He commanded and, well, no, demanded the spotlight. But just behind the spotlight was the man that, without him, there really wouldn't have been an NXS that we know. Now, yes, Michael was the face, the personality, but the sounds, the groove, the feel, the heartbeat of the band came from my guest today. Andrew Farris was the principal songwriter in the band. He primarily came up with the music. Michael added the flair with the lyrics. Now, Andrew is a multi-instrumentalist, effortlessly switching between instruments on stage. He's an incredible producer as well, having worked with some fantastic artists over the years. He has an ear for not just making great music, but boundary-pushing music too. Now, to remind us, In Excess, as a band, sold more than 50 million records around the world. They had number one albums and singles across the globe too. They won the biggest of awards and played the biggest of venues, all whilst keeping the band line-up the same throughout their 20 years with Michael Hutchins. The six amigos of Michael out front, Gary on bass, Kirk on guitar, and then the three brothers, John, Tim, and my guest, Andrew Farris. Now, I'm excited for you to hear my chat with Andrew, but first, just a quick thank you for the response to the new daily podcast that I've started putting out this week, This Day Rocks. I'm sure you'll have seen it pop up in your feed. It's a really short five minute daily episode with a different guest each day. Early download figures looking really good, so I really do hope that you're enjoying it. And some nice feedback from Nathan Schneider, uh, Joey Michaud, MacBee, and Tenacity PR as well. It's all been positive, so thank you very much. And just to let you know that I've got some great guests coming up over the next few weeks as well, including a couple more Rock and Roll Hall of Famers. Honestly, it's been a busy time here in the Vintage Rock Pod studio. But back to today's guest then. I've spoken with people all over the world. Dave Mason was over in Hawaii. Joe Turner was in Eastern Europe. Lee Arum was in Canada. Tice van leer was in the Netherlands. But this was my first call down under to Australia. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that I live in the highlands of Scotland... Andrew lives in a similarly fairly idyllic rural area of Australia. So if you hear little bits of internet dropout, you know why. I've done my best to repair what I can, but don't let that distract from this fantastic chat. Now, we talk about his new music, and then dive into the success of NXS, where Andrew talks all about his friendship and writing role with Michael, the pressure to follow up their first real hit in America, all the stories around the incredible album Kick, which the label didn't understand when they first heard it. All the way through to working with the legend that is Ray Charles. It's a great interview and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Andrew Farris from NXS. Now I'm delighted to welcome to the show a magical musician, singer and songwriter whose songs have gone to number one all over the world, whose albums have been certified as platinum so many times he's probably got enough shiny discs to cover all the walls of my house. He's won awards all over the globe as well from the Arias in Australia, Brit Awards here in the UK, MTV Video Music Awards too. And he's back doing things his own way in a country setting too. I'm delighted to welcome to Vintage Rock Pod Principal Songwriter... With the awesome band excess, Mr. Andrew Farris. Hello, Paul. How are you, mate? I am good indeed. Thank you so much for joining me all the way down under there in Australia. Whereabouts in Australia are you?
2: I live out uh, in kind of in the middle of nowhere. I've owned a block of dirt out here for 30 years, and it's been a really good thing for me in my life. I'm very fortunate to live out here, and, and I work outdoors as well. I get my hands dirty and, you know, in a good way. You know, I work physically, and that's good for me. You know, it saves money for going to the gym.
0: Yes, absolutely, and keeps the, the mental health strong as well, doesn't it, being outdoors and things like that. So great stuff indeed. Now, um, your success has been incredible. I mean, 50 million records sold around the world, plus within excess, and we'll talk about that shortly. But I'm keen to hear about this this musical direction that you're on at the moment. Now, last year saw the release of your first solo album... Now, we know that Excess are all full of different styles and you've, and you've never been one to kind of be pigeonholed into one sort of style of music, but this solo work is a country theme, isn't it? So is that a genre that you've always enjoyed or is it something that you've got into in later years?
2: Um, a bit of both, uh, where, you know, my main role within Excess was to write songs and, you know, I was always at the back of the stage and that's okay. There's six members in excess, and that's a lot of real estate when you're on the stage. And um, <laughs> But I always saw my role as really, you know, as a musical kind of like I always thought of myself as writing a soundtrack for the band, you know, because you walk out on a stage and you need, you need to play music and you need, you know, and that's where Michael and I met when we were friends, you know, um, school friends. I'll come back to that in a minute. But with what I'm doing now, the quest- to answer your question, I live out in a place like behind me that you're looking at. I live out in a world where people do work outdoors and they do wear cowboy hats, and it's all very real. And it occurred to me from my NXS background where it's very disconnected from this kind of lifestyle here that I live with all these people. It would be really interesting for me to explore country music and what people, how their lives are that are affected, you know, by more by the environment, weather you know, stuff like that. Um, but I've also always loved country music because I like the songwriting in it. You know, songwriting, you know, to me is where it all begins. And, and so I didn't start out one day going, I am going to make a country music record. It didn't really happen quite like that. Actually, what it was more, the truth is more weirder than that, where I was, I have made recordings, you know, demos, over decades now, and I took some of my demos with me to re-record them in Nashville because the just the session musicians that are playing there are some of, in my opinion, the best in the world, and they're really good if you give them the right guidance, you know, of what you're trying to do, and I thought this is just great. So I take my demos there. I said to them, look, when I finish tracking this my music, you know, I'll find a singer that really knows what he or she's doing, and one of them said, what's wrong with your voice? And I said, well, it's me. You know, and they said, well, why don't you sing it? You know, right? And I went, okay, well, sure. You know, I, I thought, I hope it sounds right. But when it came to me being a lead singer and like the guy, it was kind of testing for me because I had to keep remembering that this is not about necessarily now I'm recording me singing. i got to remember where I sound good and how I don't sound good with my own songs, and it got kind of tricky there for a while. But the more I'm doing it, the more I'm getting more and more kind of used to myself. I know I I say to myself, that sounds crap. Uh, That that sounds pretty good. That sounds great. You know, as I'm going along, I'm getting a better idea. It's part of my journey. I feel like I'm meant to do this. It's kind of weird.
0: And you talk about um, getting to know yourself as, as a front man, Basically, you've, you've done a few shows, haven't you? Recently, how have they gone down? How have you found doing that and being the man at the front singing?
2: Yeah, it was all very well. today still started throwing vegetables at me. Paul, yes, it's going pretty well now. it's actually been going well. You know, um, seriously, it's been good and. And I just gotta remember, after all these years of, of being on stage with such an amazing group like in I gotta remember I'm the front man. I have to entertain people and I yeah. have to sing, you know. So as I'm playing guitar usually, you know, on stage these days, I don't play much keyboards. Maybe later, I'll do I'll add keyboards again. But I'm playing a lot of guitar and which I always played with in Excess well mainly wrote mm-hmm. with the guitar, actually. But um it was it's more as I'm playing now. I'm concentrating a little less on my playing, a little bit more on my singing and entertaining people, you know, it's like, hey there, you know, Um, and that's a new thing for me even after all these years. And also everything that I've been doing with my country, country rock folk music is really what I'm doing. There's influences of other things, you know, there's a little bit of blues, a bit of whatever, and I'm bringing it all into play. I wish I could tell you I knew exactly what i'm doing but i still don't really i'm making it up as a goal oh. <laughs>
0: yeah. that sounds great and uh, now that the the record is available too to listen to and stream and and everything all over the places and they're just like the, the usual places spotify and all that sort of stuff and and is there a, a place you can actually buy a physical copy so we can hold it ourselves as well
2: yeah um well actually there's a vinyl as well uh you know which i put a lot of effort into as you know did marlena and, and an art director we work with the vinyl actually It does things if you, I can't explain it. I wish I could hold it up. And I didn't know you asked (laughs) me about it, but it's got a picture, like it's got, it's got animation on it. So when it goes around the turntable, it actually does things and you can get like a little app and you put it on Ah. and there's things moving on it, like birds and horses and clocks and things that are going around both sides of the vinyl. But it was sort of funny when I went to do the vinyl, the record label and other people like, you don't want to do vinyl, do you? I mean, it's just so old fashioned. I'm like, I don't agree. Actually, having spent (laughs) more time in the US recently, you go to a a huge um, bookstore chain called Books & Co, where I went there 10 years ago, they had a small little section with vinyl. Now it's almost half the the building is full of vinyl. I'm going like, you know, hello, you know? (laughs) You know, and I think it's the same here in the UK as
0: well. Our big store, HMV, is full of vinyl, and vinyl is the rage, and that's what everyone wants these days.
2: Well, because it's physical, it's got artwork, and you can read lyrics, and you can look at it, and you say, Who's this artist? What are they all on about? You know, and that's what it's really all about. I don't think it's necessarily a fashion thing. I think it's got more, and I think it probably horrifies some of the corporate people because they like having you in a little box. (laughs) you know made of titanium they can push buttons with,
0: you know. and you talk about being in, in a little box that was something you certainly couldn't put in excess into now uh, for a bit of fun I put a, a post up on social media last night and just asked uh, my, my followers my listeners to to describe uh, the, the sound of in M- excess could they do it and I had people saying um like Dave Alcock said it was pop rock I had Athel Manson saying you couldn't pigeonhole it it's, it, it was genre defying and then other people saying Joey Michaud said new wave it was um, other people saying um, funk rock as well so so it was something that you really couldn't pigeonhole. And I saw an old interview of yourself and Michael where you were discussing your influences at the end of the 70s. And Michael said that from one end it was chic and the other end was Sex Pistols. And you remarked it was a chic Sex Pistol. And that kind of goes to show that you guys were never scared to, to push the boundary when it came to making music and, and and not being pigeonholed and trying to do different sounds and things on records.
2: Yeah, you know, look, I'll take all of that and wear that with pride. Yeah, no, that's exactly right, Paul. I mean, I think... I, you know, God bless him, I think Michael was also, you know, he he flew pretty high as an artist. And what I mean by that, you know, he, Michael was always excited by, you know, the unknown and flying higher, you know, as a human and as an artist, he, you know, as a singer and everything. He just got better and better and better as he went along. And I think, you know, he was a complicated person too, but he was always impatient. And one of the things he never really learned to do properly was to play an instrument, which is what, you know, he, his voice and his, his mind were his instruments, really, his charisma, you know. Um, great lyricist as well, very, very poignant, very direct with his lyrics, brilliant. But I would write lyrics too, but it was mainly my music skills and whatever that he suddenly realized he could resource a lot of what I brought to the table. And really, we're completely diametrically opposed as people. You know, I'm a bit slower. I don't mind being on the earth. I don't want to fly up in the ether. Um, that doesn't really interest me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm more of a ground guy. Um, and so we were re- that opposite characters and personalities work really well for an excess because we were never competitive. You know, you see so many bands where the people within the band, sadly, have lots of issues with each other is because often they get very competitive, you know, and even right towards the end of his life when Michael and I were talking about, you know, his own world and what he wanted to achieve, what we wanted to do as a band. He often, we laughed, you know, he laughed, we laughed, saying one of the good things about us is we were very different people. We didn't really want the same things all the time. And and I think that was important because when we got together, whether it was socially or to work within the band, you know we really came together on a a more professional level um you know i'm grateful for those memories you know
0: indeed and you, you mentioned earlier there's obviously six of you in the band um uh, your brothers as well as michael and things like that but the fact that for, for that such was it two decades that you were together as a band it was the same members all the way through and you mentioned there about the the, the feeling within the group and that's that's kind of a rare thing isn't it? i mean even successful bands they they change members in and out and, and different um instrumentalists you have different singers at times as well but for you guys to have had such success with the same lineup for, for such a long time was incredible
2: i agree i mean i've often thought about that in fact i said it I said it to my daughter, Josie, today, that exact same thing, that to be in a band is a very unnatural state in the first place. I mean, because she was talking about her daytime job and how she just is so glad she can go home from work (laughs) and not be with all those people. And I said, well, your funny old dad here, you know, we used to roll around for months on end working together and travelling together, and we were like a little unit. You know, kind of like a, almost like a military unit, where you've got to be very careful what you say and how you respect other people. You know, it's very important because you can say the wrong thing, and it's not just about you know being mates or your brothers. You're you're in a business with all these people, you know, and it, and there's art involved, and you've got to be you've got to be cool, you know. So I think. You know, those experiences for me with those guys and in excess, I respect them hugely and I know what they went through because I went through it with them, yeah, you know?
0: absolutely. Now, you had great success in Australia, obviously, right from the start. Your first three albums were getting bigger and bigger and then the fourth album came along, The Swing. It went to number one over there, but it was your, your fifth album, wasn't it? Listen Like Thieves, that really hit home around the world for you.
2: Yeah, that's correct. And it was the first album that, in excess had work with Chris Thomas, um, British record producer. Um, anyone that might know that name would know that, you know, some of the recordings he worked on and worked with people were simply astounding. Uh, the first job he ever had was working with the Beatles when he was 19 um, because they were arguing and George Martin went into the, the dean of the, I think, London College of Music or something and said, can I borrow your brightest student? And then Dean said, sure. So George Martin said, would you like to come down to, to Abbey Road and do some work? And he's like, okay. guess, and gets in the black cab oh. goes down there and he walks him straight in to, to the Beatles sessions on the White Album and says, look, you know, you're not getting on very well, you guys. I'm going to go to Greece with my wife for two weeks and this guy here is going to record everything you're doing. His name's Chris Thomas and walked off and went to Greece. And if you read the liner notes, yeah, Chris has played a lot on, on the White Album as well. But he went on to do not just that. He went on to do, like, you know, Roxy Music. Um, you know, he I think he helped mix Dark Side of the Moon with Alan Parsons and he, he went on to, you know, uh, to produce Nevermind the Bollocks for the Sex Pistols and it goes on and on and on and on. His career was massive. Well, that album of ours that we did back there in 85, I think it was, '80, Chris, um, Chris, yeah, he... He, um he he said you've got a good uh, good album i like this album there's some great songs on it but you just don't have that one song and there's a sort of sinking feeling in your guts and you go what you know he goes yeah you just <laughs> um, i'm like okay because i always felt that responsibility you know right from the get-go you know as a songwriter to yeah. so always give us what i felt the band needed and so did michael you know as well and, and we're all sort of I was pretty despondent at that point. And he says, he turns around to me and Mark. He says, you, you go in that room and you come up with that song. We're all going now. I don't know where they all went to a restaurant or pub or something. And I'm like, Great. You know, so, so, and then it was my older brother, Tim, and said, Look, uh, Andrew had been working on this thing, like this groove and this, and this riff and this big chord thing that comes in on the chorus. And, um, he said, why don't they work on that? And I thought, actually, it's not a bad idea because it it didn't have a name then. So Michael and I just played it over and over and over again, which is the demo for what you need. then it became that, and we just made it like an upbeat feel-good song, Um, and it went huge, um, and it went top five for the first time in the United States. And what I didn't realise we were doing at the time, I mean, we kind of thought we knew what we were doing, was melting that funk groove in with rock so that you know Hmm. and fortunately for us we got right on the beginning of a train of people you know that came along with or after us that went oh that sounds really good because it's got the power of rock but you can still dance to it you know
0: fantastic and as you said they went top five in the us and that was that was huge and made made you superstars, but then was there any pressure to then come up with with the album which then followed that?
2: yeah, sure was and and so, like you know, I remember our manager Chris Murphy, who sadly passed away about a year ago he he called me at home back then I was living in Sydney, obviously, you can see behind me, I don't live in sydney anymore <laughs> um and uh but he calls me and he says um." You know, did you know that your songs, you know, go on top five in the United States? And I said, I didn't I had no idea? And, and I said, and he said, That's amazing. You should go out, you know, have a drink, you know, go party or whatever. And I'm like, okay. And and I put <laughs> I'm mean, like, thanks. I put the phone down. And the first thing I did was call Michael. And I said, Daddy, how do you feel about that? I thought, I don't know why I feel kind of strange about that. You know, I don't I should feel really excited. And he said, I feel exactly the same way. And we worked it out and we said, Well, I know what do you think? And, and we came up with the conclusion that now we have to go do something better than that, because if that's the (laughs) best we can ever do, right. Then that's as high as you ever got. But if you want to go higher, you're like, well, how do we do that? Right. And then, and then we suddenly realized the pressure came on and that's why we were then on that same tour for listen, like these, we went, we're on a bus in Germany. I think it was, and we were all talking about it as a band and Michael and I suggested to the band We weren't, honestly, we weren't being clever Or greedy or anything We said, look, we've had this big hit And there's something that Michael and I have gotten onto with this sort of groove funk thing Why don't we explore that More and the two of us will write some more Songs like that and we'll go down that road And And to our Surprise, the band guys very, very Intelligently Said that's a great idea mm-hmm. Why don't you two do that Why don't you just write the entire album now, right there is a very unusual thing to come from a band. Like most bands, no, no, this is mine. No, no, this is mine. That's not yours. That's a lot. Most of them are like that, you know, and that's where they get into big problems, you know. And But these guys are very clever and they said, no, no, you guys do that. <laughs> and we we're like, no responsibility, right?
0: <laughs> you know,
2: <laughs> right? So we wanted it. And they're like, now you've got it, you know. So we're like, okay. And then. And that's where Kick came from, and then we had five top ten hits around the world off that one album. Because, but we felt that we had the support of the people in the band, and that was just a win, 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 win for everybody. It was a win for the band. It was a win yeah. for the band's fans. It was a win for Michael and I. It was a win for everybody. And the and the label, you know, especially in America, it, honestly, this is a true story. We took it to them. They went, "What's this?" And we said, "It's Kick. It's our album." <laughs> They're like, well, we don't understand it. Okay. Because this is 1987. Right. They're like, we don't understand yeah. this record. But we're like, well, we'll give you a lot of money, go back and re record it. Can't you guys just do like a, like a hairband thing and wow. just put on some spandex and play the game? We're like, no, this is our album and we really love it, you know? And again, it was Chris Thomas producing the thing and he loved the album too. And we were very excited about it, but we didn't know what to do with it because you, you couldn't take it to anybody that went, oh, we, we know what this is. Sure, don't worry, guys, we'll handle this. We, we'll we handle it. We'll take it from here, okay? Don't worry about it, you know? There wasn't anybody to take that to. So we, you know, to give credit to our, our old manager, Chris Murphy, and other people, brave people in, in the record labels who went, okay, <laughs> we'll give it a go, and then look what happened, you know?
0: Look what happened indeed. I mean, from that pressure that you talked about of having to come up with a a follow up to something like that, you you did bring out Kick, as you say, and seven times platinum in Australia, six times platinum in the US, Mm. three times platinum here in the UK, diamond certified in Canada. It literally catapulted you guys to being one of the biggest bands on the planet. And another quote that I found from you that I really loved, and you said, um, anyone can write um, a song that sounds contemporary, but we wanted wanted our songs to sound like the future. Yeah. And it kind of describes what you're saying there. You weren't pigeonholed into the, the spandex, the 80s kind of heavy metal sort of stuff that was going on. You were trying something new. And and despite the original thoughts, it did go huge for you.
2: Yeah, and, and for, that's right. And fortunately for the record labels too, you know, because they didn't really like our band, honestly. I don't think they really – some of them did. Some of the record company people found us really intriguing because – we would constantly change our style of music as a band all the time. We're always experimenting, researching, trying to work out, you know, how can we do this a little bit differently or what's happening over here? What are these people doing musically? You know, not just our own peers in the eighties, but what were people doing two decades ago? What what do you think they're going to be doing next year? We're always thinking like that. And so for a record company, we're a kind of nightmare, you know, because we, we weren't predictable. We didn't rub a stamp of our records. They didn't sound all the same. And I've had three, you know, artists who I admire greatly, Brandon Flowers from The Killers, Rob Thomas from Matchbox 20 and um, Pat Monaghan from Train, massive, massive bands, um, all said to me independently, I don't know what you guys were doing back then, but we still hear your music on contemporary radio, you know. That's really unusual. You know, usually you're here and you're gone. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I mean, I wish I could tell you we were that clever, but we did experiment. And somehow, between Chris Thomas's production capability, which is huge, and the band's musical capabilities, which is huge, somehow we got it together. Yeah.
0: So what did you feel at the time then? Because obviously you've recorded this, you talked about the pressure, um, fantastic production, everything from Chris there. And mm. once you've got the tracks down, you're obviously super pleased with it. You're hearing the response from the label. I mean, what's your initial thoughts there? Because obviously you're trying to follow up something which was a huge success.
2: Right. Well, I think, you know, I think they realized that we were, if we were given the right platforms, that it could really work well for us. And, It was interesting because when we started out our touring, we were kind of playing three to four, five thousand seater venues, and you know all around the world. But by the end of that tour, we were playing stadiums. That was a shock to us too because at first you 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 think it's like uh, you know I don't know how to explain it. It's like a fantasy, or you think that this is great and you know whatever. But it's like um, it's about money, or it's about um, fame or it's about awards, like you said, hanging on walls or whatever. I think that, you know, to me, what I, I found really more and more blows me away within XS's career is that we've gone into culture, both obviously in Australia, but in other countries where people know of the yes. band. We know they they we toured relentlessly for like some we worked in over 50 countries and we were passionate about our shows and and trying to put on a good show all the time, you know, for, for the audiences and trying to be there, um, <laughs> which sounds like a rubbish, but we were trying to be responsible rock stars. You know, <laughs> like the two the two words don't really go together, but we really try it hard to, to give that value to the audiences and and try to really enjoy ourselves and play well. And and I think that works because somehow we went into culture and we were ended up working alongside and with the respect of some really seriously successful and famous musicians who we admired. But that yeah. comes with a lot of...
0: And can I just pick you up on that, if you, if you don't mind? Um, oh. Another song that I've always loved was, was the one you did with Ray Charles. I mean, how yeah. did that come about? That's that's phenomenal.
2: Yeah, it's that was phenomenal. It was fun, too. I mean, my understanding, we didn't realise it for a long time, uh, but I think we were the only band that Mr. Charles ever worked yeah. with. You know, he mainly worked with solo acts, you know, with whoever it was, you know, from Willie Nelson to, I don't know, Frank Sinatra or whoever it was, that, that's normally who he worked with. But, um, but yeah, but you know, and he was a real gentleman as a person. How that came about was we were recording what became uh, album Full Moon, Dirty Hearts, and we'd been working in Italy to record and we went to Paris to mix it. And when we got there... We found out uh, that Ray Charles was downstairs in the studio downstairs recording, and we were pretty excited. I mean, when I was a kid growing up, my dad, who was ex-Royal Navy, he used to have a pretty awesome vinyl record collection, including Ray Charles records. So I'm like, you mean Ray Charles is downstairs? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, wow. And our manager, Chris, at the time said, why don't you send down a couple of songs and see if he'd want to sing on them or play with you? And we're like. That's right, Charles. He's not going to want to see him play on one of our records. What are you talking about? You know? He said, no, just send it down to him. So we did send these songs back, and the message came back up. He said, yeah, he really likes these two songs. And we're like, what? So, uh, okay. And so we ended up, you know, tracking uh, Mr. Charles on on, on um, a song called Please, You Got That Need. And then we ended up taking it further, and we ended up making a video with Mr. Charles in downtown New York City, and then, you know, the, the ultimate thing, I still can't believe it, is he ended up playing live with Ray Charles on the David Letterman show. Yeah. Um, and I had to play piano in front of Ray Charles. <laughs> and it was a part that no I'm playing eights. No, I'm playing eights. It's not even funky. There's no even groove. I'm just going that, 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 that. I'm going, of all the piano parts, I could be playing in front of Mr. Charles. I'm playing eights. I'm like, oh no. You know, he's going to think i um, like a kindergarten kid or something, you know, but he's cool. That, that man was amazing. A very, very soft, soft, gentle genius. That man, incredible.
0: Fantastic stuff indeed. Well, brilliant. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, Andrew. Uh, best of luck with with your, your music and, and playing live and honing the, the, the feeling of being the front man and the, being the center of attention.
2: Yeah, yeah, wish me luck. All right, mate. Well, you know, um, safe travels and, uh, you know, hope all's well there for you. Take care.
0: The brilliant Andrew Farris there. Please do check out his solo album if you can. The vinyl sounds amazing with the images on. Sounds very typical as well from a man that pushes boundaries and concepts. Right now is the time for the top fives. And of course, this week, I'll give you my favourite five songs from In Excess. But first, some of your comments from last week's top fives on the Tubes songs. Oh, and if you haven't had a chance to listen to my interview with Fee Weibel from the Tubes yet, then you 100% have to. It is unbelievable but there's a lot of nudity chat because the band were pretty wild to say the least. Hello to Morris Borstinski, whose top five were very eclectic, each from a different album, with at number three Tip of My Tongue, two, Turn Me On and number one, Smoke. Bill McHugh, he was going for She's a Beauty as his favourite track and agreeing with me on a couple of others from the top five. Andy Old threw up Wild Women of Wongo on his list, which was topped by What Do You Want From Life, while Joe from Play That Rock and Roll podcast added Sushi Girl into his top five which was topped by Talk To You Later. Sadly nobody else going for my number one track. Tube's World Tour. Sad face love that song. Anyway let's move on to In Excess then. Now as a big fan of the band I found this quite hard to condense into five. Remember, this is my personal choice, highly subjective. I don't expect you to agree. In fact, I'd love to hear how you disagree. Please reach out to me with your own top fives this week and I'll give you a mention on next week's show. So here you go, my top five favourite in excess songs according to Vintage Rock Pod. At 5 is a track from their 10th and final album recorded with Michael. I remember being excited to buy this record when it came out. There'd been about four years since the previous release. And on playing it, I pretty much got the repeat button jammed on the title track for weeks. Such an effortlessly groovy, funky song with a searing chorus. At 5 is elegantly wasted. At four is a left-field choice, an album track, never a single. It finally appeared on 1990's album X, but Andrew had the bones of the song going back to the kind of pre-kick days where the uh, Listen Like Thieves record was being recorded. Again, it's another of those songs with a beat that I cannot help but move to, and Michael's vocal performance begins subdued before growing towards the end. And number four is Lately. Lately! At three is the fifth and final single released from the incredible album Kick. A little more subdued than some of the others on the list, but no less iconic. I love the video to this as well. Andrew and Michael sat at the piano as if trying to work out the song on the fly. It's also one of those memorable songs that opens with dry vocals too. All veils and misty. At three is Mystify. At two is another track from the album X, the lead single, in fact. It's an upbeat, positively dancey number and another big hit for the band. The lyrics were said to have been written following Michael attending a premiere with his then-girlfriend Kylie Minogue. At number two is suicide
2: blonde
0: And at number one, well, there's plenty of big songs I haven't picked yet, but I'm going to go with the lead single from KICK, possibly the band's signature song, and with good reason. The riff on this song is infectious. I've got to let you know, you're one of my kind. The number one NXS song on my list is Need You Tonight. I've got to let you know. let you know you want my kind so there you go my top five songs from in excess as i said i'd love to hear your thoughts on the list i know there's so many other songs that i could have put in there maybe should have put in there but i'd love to know where you agree where do you disagree let me know you can email me vintage rock at gmail.com or you can catch me on any of the social media platforms too I do hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you did, please hit subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening to this on so you don't miss any more future episodes. Like I said, I've got some big guests coming your way over the coming weeks. and especially because of the daily This Day Rocks episodes that are heading your way too. Also, do please check out the Vintage Rock Pod social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just search for Vintage Rock Pod. Give us a like or a follow on there, most appreciated. And look for the YouTube channel as well, and you can get to see some of the videos that I record with these interviews too. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod. Well, that's it for episode 62 then. I'll be back tomorrow with another This Day Rocks and next week with another incredible guest. Yes, a rock and roll hall of famer. But until then, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock, just tell them, my music is better than yours. Take care.